Uh, we're so glad you're here this morning. It's just been a joy getting to be with you last week and this week. And we're continuing, this is not necessarily a new argument, but we're continuing along the lines of what Paul was saying last week. As you've received Christ, so walk in him. And so we'll continue with the next passage of scripture, but I'm gonna pray for us and open our time as we go to the Lord together. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for this morning. We thank you for waking us up and helping us to get here. We pray now that you would open our hearts, that by your spirit, you would help us to see what you want us to see in your word. Lord, that you would help us to see Jesus, for we've come to know him and worship him and grow in him. So Lord, open our eyes that we might see wonderful things in your word. Uh, we, we come and we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Years ago, Tom Brady did an interview on 60 Minutes. I don't know if you've seen it. Uh, it's, portions of it are still available on YouTube if you wanna go looking for it. But this was after Brady had won three Super Bowls with the New England Patriots. So he was pretty well established as a pro quarterback. And as we begin, I wanna share a little bit of that conversation with you. So the reporter in the interview, after talking about some of uh, Brady's success, said, this is what you always wanted. And Tom Brady says, you're right, it is. I didn't think it came with all the other baggage, though. And then there's some scenes of him hitting a golf ball and sort of enjoying his life, and you hear the narrator's voice. With all that money, fame, and career accomplishments, we were surprised to hear this from him. And then Tom says, why do I have three Super Bowl rings and still think there's something greater out there for me? Maybe a lot of people would say, hey man, this is what it is. I reached my goal, my dream, but I think, God, there's gotta be more than this. So the reporter asks him, what's the answer? And it's almost so honest and so raw that it makes me uncomfortable. But Tom says, I wish I knew, I wish I knew. That I love playing football, I love being the quarterback for this team, but at the same time, I think there's a lot of other parts about me that I'm trying to find. Fascinating. We don't have Super Bowl rings, <laughs> but we all can relate. We've all experienced getting something that we thought would do it for us. The job, the car, the marriage, the money, the home, the membership, etc. And we all thought there's gotta be more than this. It doesn't satisfy like we thought it would. But how do, how do we describe that moment, that feeling when we think there's gotta be more than this? I want you to think about the word transcendence. In Paul Tripp's book, A Quest for More, his first chapter is about transcendence. And here are a couple things that Paul Tripp writes. He says, the desire for transcendence is in all of us because God placed it there. He constructed us to live for more than ourselves. And then he says, the transcendent glory that every human being quests for, whether he knows it or not, is not a thing. It is a person, and his name is God. You think about that. If we're all looking for transcendence, we're all vulnerable in a way because we're all looking for more. And everywhere we look, we hear the call, come over here, try this. This will do it for you, this will fill you. But it always sooner or later leaves us feeling empty. So if you can understand that, you can understand the situation the Colossians were facing. And you can begin to understand Paul's passion to remind them of all they have in Jesus. 
So we're gonna turn to our text now. You have it on your handout or look at it in your Bible. This is Colossians chapter two, verses eight through 15. Paul writes, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ, for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So I wanna start today by focusing for a while on verses nine and 10. They're the verses we might miss, but I think this is really the heart of what Paul is trying to tell us in this section. I want you to see some language here that we've actually already seen in Colossians, and then I want you to see that language in the context of all of Scripture. So if you look at verses 9 and 10, I want you to pay attention to the words fullness and filled. Verse 9, for in him, that is in Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. And we don't always do this, but I wanna take this idea of fullness and being filled through God's word and trace it. And I want you to see connections in this, fill, in this fullness and filled language to things like worship and the temple. So first, we're gonna go way back. I want you to think about what God's presence was like in the Garden of Eden. The Garden of Eden was paradise. It was essentially a paradise temple where Adam and Eve enjoyed the presence of God. And think about that. It was a place of worship and communion of, with God and fullness. And in that context, in Genesis 1, 28, says, and God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. So why fruitful and multiply and fill the earth? Because as God's image bearers, as they spread out and fill the earth, they'll fill the earth with the glory and praise of God. Now think about God's presence after Genesis 3, after the fall. After Adam and Eve sinned, the garden temple is closed, paradise is shut. How can sinners now be in the presence of a holy God? We turned away from worshiping him. We traded fullness for emptiness, though it looked like we were pursuing fullness, turned out to be emptiness. And interestingly, when the Lord talks about our sin, he often uses this language of filling ourselves up with the wrong things. So this is from Isaiah chapter two, verses six and eight, where Isaiah's warning people about the coming day of the Lord, the judgment that's coming. It says, for you have rejected your people, the house of Jacob, because they're full of things from the east and of fortune tellers like the Philistines. Their land is filled with silver and gold and there's no end to their treasures. Their land is filled with horses and there's no end to their chariots. Their land is filled with idols. 
They bow down to the work of their hands, to what their own fingers have made. See this connection between filling ourselves with the wrong things, it's ultimately worship. And then in Hosea 13, verses four through six, but I am the Lord your God from the land of Egypt. You know no God but me, and besides me there is no savior. It was I who knew you in the wilderness, in the land of drought, but when they had grazed, they became full. They were filled, and their heart was lifted up. Therefore, they forgot me. We fill ourselves up with other things, and we forget the Lord, and we end up empty. Yet God's great promise throughout the Old Testament is I will be your God and you will be my people and I will be with you, but how? How is that going to happen after the fall? So along the way, first, God reveals himself and communes with particular people. It's like he's laser focused on, on certain men. And so think about Noah and think about Abraham and think about Isaac and think about Jacob as God's relationship with these men and his promises and his covenant unfolds. And think about Moses now. Where did the Lord meet with Moses? Well, on Mount Sinai, but it was just Moses. But that's where God's presence was concentrated and his glory was known, but everyone else was forbidden to draw near. Moses was there, but nobody else could come. Then how was God present with his people after the Exodus? Well, he instructed Moses and the people to build the tabernacle, a mobile worship tent. And God's presence was moving around with his wandering people. He would go with them. But who could actually enter the Holy of Holies, that, that focal point of the tabernacle? Only the high priest and only once a year. They're still not anywhere near the way things were in the garden. Then how was God present with his people after the tabernacle? Remember David's dream to build a temple and Solomon actually built the temple, a fixed building in Jerusalem. We're not a mobile worship tent anymore. And as soon as the, as the temple is ready, this language of fullness appears. First Kings 8.10, this is when Solomon brings the priests, uh, has the priests bring the ark into the new temple. First Kings 8.10, when the, when the priests came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priest could not stand and minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. You think a few hundred years later, Isaiah has this vision in Isaiah 6. He says, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. What does Isaiah do in response? He says, woe is me, for I am lost, for I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. The temple filled with his presence and his glory in such a way that even a prophet is like, I'm done. So the Lord fills his temple with his glory. His presence is there in a special way. So you think about temples Throughout history, they've often been the biggest buildings in the city, representing kind of the intersection between heaven and earth and this amazing place of glory and worship and transcendence. But the first temple, the glorious temple of Israel, was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar's army. Later, a second temple was built, and that was the one standing during Jesus' time on earth. 
But even before the birth of Christ, there were these hints that God was gonna do something amazing to fill the earth. We've been preaching through Daniel on Sunday mornings, and you may have remembered a few weeks ago, Daniel 2, 34 and 35. This is when Daniel is interpreting one of King Nebuchadnezzar's strange dreams, and he says, as you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors, and the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This is stated a little differently in Habakkuk 2.14. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. So from the beginning, there's been this desire of the Lord to fill the earth again with his worship and his praise and his glory. But how? How is God present with his people after the Old Testament? Jump into John 1. John 1, 14, and the word, Jesus Christ, became flesh and dwelt, or you could say tabernacled among us. So Jesus came as the tabernacle, God with us. And then just a chapter later in John 2, 19, Jesus answered them, destroy this temple. He's referring to himself, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. So Jesus Christ himself is the temple. It's no longer about a building or a place. It's ultimately now about a person. And so you bring that into Colossians 1.19, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And now our, our chapter, verse nine in chapter two, for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. The glory of God in a person Fully God, fully man, Jesus is the temple. And so you see when he gives his life at the end of Matthew, Matthew 27, 51, and behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. It's almost like God ripped it from the top. <laughs> Don't need the temple anymore. Jesus is the temple. You wanna know how to meet with God, be in the fullness of his presence? Come to Jesus. And you might say, well, that's probably the end of the story, right? So what happened next? How was God present with his people after Jesus came? You can't do any better than Jesus being here with us in the flesh, right? Jesus had an even more incredible plan to dwell with his people, his church. Acts 2, verse 1, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting and divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Go a couple chapters later, Acts 4, 31, and when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. You hear all this filled talk, fullness. 1 Corinthians three sixteen. Paul writes, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you. Ephesians 2, 22, 
in him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And so in Colossians 1.9 that we saw some weeks ago, Paul prays that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And then you go to Colossians 2.10 and you have been filled in him, Paul says. In Ephesians 3.19, at the end of his beautiful prayer, Paul prays for people to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. You see this amazing progression. The garden was the temple, and then the tabernacle was the temple, and then the temple was the temple, and then Jesus was the temple, and now God's people, the church, is the temple in him. God wants to fill us with all of his fullness, you say, well, that's great for now. Where is this all going? If you go to the end of the story in Revelation 21, verse one, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven, the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. That great promise that's been there all along comes to full fruition in the new heaven and the new earth when we are with him. And you know what it says in Revelation 21, 22? And I saw no temple in the city for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty and the Lamb. So maybe, you're feel, maybe this stirs your heart, maybe it doesn't, but why does this matter? And here's why. This fullness language in the Bible, I hope you see, is like temple language. It's worship language. Throughout the story of scripture, God's desire is to dwell with his people that they might be filled with all of his fullness and worship him in a way that brings the joy and life for which they were created. And I want you to see that Jesus is at the epicenter of that story doesn't work without him. So in essence, sin is looking for all of that somewhere else. Sin is looking for fullness where there's only emptiness. And this is why Paul is trying to drive home this point. For in Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And in Christ, you have been filled. Not, brothers, you will be filled. Or not, you might be filled. You have been filled. So where are you looking for transcendence in your life in this season? Where are you looking to be filled? If you're looking for transcendence in sports, the stadium might be your temple. If you're looking for a transcendence in partying, the bar might be your temple. <laughs> if you're looking for transcendence in food, the favorite restaurant might be your temple. If you're looking for transcendence in money, your work or Wall Street might be your temple. If you're looking for transcendence in sex, your temple might be the strip club or the website. If you're looking for transcendence in comfort, your temple might be your house or somewhere else. If you're looking for transcendence in society, your temple might be the country club. And a lot of these things are not bad. It's just if that's where we're looking for transcendence, it's not gonna end up filling us. G.K. Chesterton once said, every man who knocks on the door of a brothel is looking for God. Isn't that interesting? We could say the same thing about wherever we're knocking, <laughs> wherever we're looking for transcendence. Tom Brady thinks he's looking for Super Bowl rings. 
Chesterton would say, no, you're looking for God. You think you're looking for whatever. No, you're actually looking for God. In Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis writes, now God designed the human machine to run on himself. God cannot give us a happiness and peace apart from himself because it is not there. There is no such thing. So for us to look for fullness somewhere else is like trying to put something other than gas in your car. It just doesn't work. Look for it anywhere else and you'll ultimately find emptiness, but look for transcendence and fullness in Jesus and you will find fullness. If we don't know Jesus, if we don't look to him in faith, of course we're tempted to worship someone or something else. Of course we seek fullness in other places, that makes sense. But if we do know Jesus, if we do look to him in faith, we're still tempted to turn away, to worship something else. And this is what the Colossians were facing. As you go on in this chapter, you realize that it's a worship issue at stake. In Colossians 2.4, Paul calls them plausible arguments that might lead us away. In Colossians 2.8, Paul calls it philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. And then in verses 16 to 23, which we'll look at next week, we'll get into the details of this philosophy. But what's interesting is in this section, Paul's not really focused on the lies. He's focused on the truth. I've heard that if you're teaching people to try to find counterfeit currency, they don't actually give the people a bunch of counterfeit currency to look at. They give them the real thing and say, study this, study this, get to know this incredibly well, because if you know the real thing, you can spot the fake. And that's really Paul's approach to any philosophy or approach to life. It's not so much focusing so much on that. It's about knowing the truth of Jesus Christ so well that we can spot the lie. We shouldn't be taken captive by it, Paul says. We shouldn't become a slave to it. And so in this section, Paul doesn't really attack what these other things are. He attacks what they're not. He says they're not according to Christ. They're not consistent with the truth of the gospel that we have received, what we talked about last week. They're not in step with the Christian life that we're called to walk, what we talked about last week. So whether we're talking about materialism or politics or self-actualization or hedonism or whatever philosophy or thing is out there, just ask these kinds of questions. Can these things do what Jesus has already done? Are these things better than Jesus? They're offering life and fullness and growth and victory. Can they deliver? And the answer to those questions is a simple no. Christ is our temple and Christ has already triumphed. I wanna talk about that triumph for a few minutes. We could spend weeks in this passage. <laughs> so I'm just gonna skip a little rock over it. There's so much here, but I wanna unpack what we have because of Christ's victory. So look with me at verses 13 through 15. Paul says, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed, or we could say stripped or undressed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. So Paul says we were dead in our sins. Have you ever seen a dead person do anything? Have you ever seen a dead person bring himself back to life? 
It's one of the most powerful biblical arguments. You see it in Ephesians 2. We're not just a little wounded in our sins or a little sick. We're dead, Paul says. And if we're dead in our sins, there's no other philosophy or approach to life that's somehow going to make us alive. So Paul's argument here and in Ephesians is that only God, God made us alive together with Christ. And so if you are in him this morning, rejoice because he has brought you from death to life. And if you're not in him, that is the offer today. Being alive in Christ is nothing short of a miracle, it's a resurrection. And Paul tells us more, he says, if you're in Christ, God has forgiven all your trespasses, all your sins, washed away, paid in full, it is finished. How did he do this? Try to imagine all your sins, past, present, future, write them out on a scroll. How big is that scroll? It's a record of debt. It's like an IOU. It's something you could never repay to God, even on into eternity. And now think of the cross where Jesus died. There was a charge nailed above him on the cross, king of the Jews. But what Paul is basically saying is there was another charge nailed to the cross, the debt of his people. So imagine your record of debt that stood against you, nailed there to the cross with Jesus and all the judgment that those debts deserved from a holy God, Jesus paid in your place. There's nothing left for you to pay if you are in Christ. Paul says this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. So if you are in Christ, part of the triumph is Jesus has defeated sin and death for you. <laughs> no small thing. But it doesn't even end there. Paul says that Jesus also defeated, or we could say disarmed or stripped the rulers and authorities. What are these? These are the spiritual forces of evil that work to enslave us and get us into a life of lies and emptiness. And so what Paul is using is the picture of like a Roman triumph celebration after a great victory in war. And Charles Spurgeon preached on this. I wanna quote him at length because he gives us a picture of what this triumph day would be like. So listen to Spurgeon. He says, when a Roman general had performed great feats in a foreign country, his highest reward was that the Senate should decree him a triumph. Of course, there was a division of spoil made on the battlefield, and each soldier and each captain took his share, but every man looked rapturously to the day when they should enjoy the public triumph. On a certain set day, the gates of Rome were thrown open. All the houses were decorated with ornaments. The people climbed to the tops of the houses or stood in great crowds along the streets. The gates were open and by and by the first legion began to stream in with its banners flying and its trumpets sounding. The people saw the stern warriors as they marched along the street returning from their blood red fields of battle. After one half of the army had thus passed by, your eye would rest upon one who was the center of all attraction. Riding in a noble chariot drawn by milk white horses, there came the conqueror himself, crowned with the laurel crown and standing erect, chained to his chariot were the kings and mighty men of the regions which he had conquered. Immediately behind them came part of the booty. There were carried the ivory and the ebony and the beasts of the different countries which he had subdued. After these came the rest of the soldiers, a long, long stream of valiant men, all of them sharing the triumphs of their captain. 
Behind them came banners, the old flags that had floated aloft in the battle, the standards which had been taken from the enemy, and after these large painted emblems of the great victories of the warrior, upon one there would be a huge map depicting the rivers which he had crossed or the seas through which his navy had found its way. Everything was represented in a picture and the populace gave a fresh shout as they saw the memorial of each triumph. And then behind, together with the trophies would come the prisoners of lesser rank. Then the rear would be closed with sound of trumpet, adding to the acclamation of the throng. It was a noble day for old Rome. Isn't that incredible? <laughs> What's more incredible? Paul had either seen one of those or he had heard about it. And Paul says, this is what Jesus did on the cross. So you think, oh, moment of weakness, moment of losing, moment of failure. No, in his suffering, in his bleeding, in his dying, Jesus conquered sin and death and all the host of Satan. <laughs> what Satan thought was a great victory was an overwhelming defeat. That triumph would never happen if you were still having little skirmishes out on the field. You had to soundly beat the enemy so that you could, they're submitting and you're dragging them through town. <laughs> That's what Paul is saying Jesus did to all of our enemies. And that victory is secure already. And when Christ returns, we will witness the ultimate death of death and the end of Satan. So Christ has triumphed and his victory is ours if we are in him. We share, as Spurgeon said, in the triumph of our captain. <laughs> How should you walk around if that's you, if that's who you are in Christ? Being in Christ means that his story has become our story, our defining story. So there's in Paul this sense that we died with him. We'll talk more about this in Colossians 3. We died with him, which we see in this circumcision language of verse 11. We don't have time to explore it, but it's really fascinating and uncomfortable for guys. <laughs> we were buried with him and raised with him, which Paul connects to baptism in verse 12. And we often say that Christ died in our place. We tend to think that means, oh, he was there dying for us, which is true. But it also means in some mysterious sense that we were there. His death was our death. And so in him, we have died. And we also say that Christ was raised for us. We tend to think that means he was there rising for us, and that's true. But it also means in some mysterious sense that we were there. His resurrection was our resurrection, and so in him, we have been raised. It's all past tense, brothers. Circumcised, buried, raised. It's not like we're fighting to win something. Jesus has already won it. He has already triumphed. So are you living from a place of fullness and victory in Christ? Or are you tempted to look for fullness and victory somewhere else? Wherever you're looking, if that's what you're doing, you're not gonna find it there. If you've ever said, there's gotta be more than this, the wonderful thing is, by God's grace, there is. There is more than this, so much more than this, because Jesus is the temple in him, the fullness of deity dwells bodily. And somehow, in him, you are the temple. <laughs> and you have been filled in him if you are in him. And his is the triumph, and he wants you to walk in that triumph through all the joys and sorrows and challenges of this life. He is with us. 
and we are his. So you have all that you need in Jesus Christ to live a life of fullness and, and to do that for his glory. And that's why Paul says, if we go back to last week, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for these passages where it's just too much to take in. I pray that you would enlarge our hearts and help us to understand. Lord, help us to grasp what it means that in Christ, the fullness of God dwelt and we have been filled in him. Lord, help us to see what it means that Christ has triumphed over all of our enemies. Lord, guide our discussions. Help us to get to the things you want us to get to. And in those things, I pray you'd help us to see them the way that you would have us see them. Lord, help us to see Jesus, draw us closer to him. Thank you for the relationships you've given us. Now bless this time of discussion and be with us as we go from here today. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.